will you remove your helmet and tell me your name? My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius, commander of the armies of the North, general of the Felix Legions, loyal servant to the true emperor, Marcus Aurelius, father to a murdered son, husband to a murdered wife, and I will have my vengeance in this life or the next. Hi everyone, welcome to this week's episode of No Happy Endings. The film that Stephen Benedict and I will be discussing is 2000's Gladiator, which made nearly half a billion dollars and I think has the DNA that we see in Game of Thrones and a lot of these sword and sandals films that emerged afterwards. Uh, if I said to you that a general is about to become a slave, who's about to become a gladiator, who's gonna go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the emperor in Rome. <laughs> you think, okay, I can't wait to go to Brazil to watch this telenovela, it sounds sensational. But no, this was a very mainstream film. I think it is particularly topical to discuss now on the brink of an election, which a lot of people are sort of, their nervous systems are internalizing as if it's existential, this wonderful experiment of democracy in this country that's been going on for 240 years or so. Um, but I think also you have boxing following suit where during a pandemic, during an election, the biggest match that the sport can offer is 54-year-old Mike Tyson fighting against 51-year-old Roy Jones and it's being put on by something called Triller, and you've got reality TV stars or, or YouTube stars um, in the backdrop. It is something between celebrity deathmatch and bum fights where, where we are, and the fact that this is the most prominent thing that the sport can offer says a lot, and it says a lot that this is where the culture is, that that's the fight it most wants to see. So Gladiator seems to touch on some similar things with Rome embracing decadence, which seems pretty familiar with where we are right now. You know, Kim Kardashian flying off to a private island for her 40th birthday, getting a hologram of her dad as a birthday gift from Kanye, who's also running for president. And gladiatorial combat looking to entertain the masses as everything is about to be set on fire, or maybe it already is on fire. Anyway, Benedict and I had a lot of fun with this one. Uh, Russell Crowe is phenomenal. It's, a, it's great fun. So I hope you enjoy Gladiator, this week's film on no happy endings. Stephen, we are going back to 180 AD. Mm -hmm. I remember it well. <laughs> Into Rome, where power has been taken over by the progeny of Marcus Aurelius, Commodus. <clears throat> now, this film Gladiator veers a little bit from the actual history. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, the big question to ask here is, um, I'm reaching for it, were you not entertained? I was wildly entertained. I went to see this movie no less than five times in the theater. 
I really, really enjoyed this picture. And um, sure, look, it, it's not without its flaws. Uh, subtle, it ain't. But I think the way I would, I would actually compare it to an opera. It has this operatic sweep to it. Um, and, though, and although in opera you can have beautiful arias and choruses and duets and trios with incredible subtlety of vocal range, characterization and subtle characterization is not what you go for in opera. You yeah. go for the you know very very solid characters, and that's what that's what a Gladiator does in Spades. And I think in choosing Ridley Scott as director, uh, Walter Parks, the producer, uh, definitely made the right choice. Um, he has prior to that. I mean, Ridley Scott was renowned for his visual eyes, beautiful uh, compositions, the way he's able to frame frame a scene, light a scene, compose it, um, whatever lens he was using. He although he prefers long lenses. And um, prior to this movie, he really hadn't done epic before. But they knew that he had it within him. Looking at his at his work, they said there's clearly a guy who can fr- fill out the detail in a frame. And so if we if we get up and running and other stuff, so Ridley bought this brilliant sweep to it and employing um, Hans Zimmer to do the score. It's really, really engaging, upbeat, sorry, sweeping score that he, he delivers. I think one of his best, and he's been repeating it at variations throughout his career for the last 20 years. That's not to take anything away from Zimmer. I think he's a first-rate composer. Um, yeah, I was really entertained, and I think they also cast it very well. They needed, to, I think, to, to get a character like Maximus, when you're making an historical epic, you've got to have an actor who's got a phenomenal ego to play the lead, you know? And they've also got to be able to back it up. You know, I know that actors have phenomenal egos, big ones, but they've really got to back it up in this um, marble-like, impervious confidence in themselves. And Russell Crowe delivers that in spades. If I can just, by uh, as a comparison, in the wake of the success of Gladiator, there's a, there's a slew of other um, historical epics like Troy with Brad Pitt as... Um, uh, as Achilles, who didn't convince me as a great warrior back in those days, and then they had Alexander starring our very, my very own, or Ireland's very own, Colin Farrell, and he's asked to deliver a line by Oliver Stone. He says, "Conquer your fear, and you'll conquer death." It just simply doesn't have the cadence that you require for a great balanced line. But Colin Farrell delivered that line, and he shrank from that huge moment in the film in the way that Russell Crowe did not shriek, did not shrink from my name is Maximus Decimus Meridius and I will have vengeance in this life or the next. You know he's coming for you. And it's brilliant. It's great stuff. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, father father to a murdered son, husband to a murdered wife, and I shall have my vengeance in this life or the next. No, I absolutely loved him. I'd seen him in Romper Stomper, and I thought, boy, he's convincing as an Australian white supremacist. Then suddenly he's playing a much older, blown-up uh, Jeffrey Wygant in The Insider, and I thought, boy, we're moving into Brando-like range that he's auditioning for becoming yeah. uh, his generation's Brando, who I know he idolized. Mm. And then he drops all of that weight and shows up in this, where if, I mean, I pitch this to you, if we go to a, a producer's meeting and I say, what about if we have the ultimate Roman general who is going to be asked to assume the role of emperor and then through a betrayal 
is going to, to be at odds with Commodus, who is going to ex execute him. He escapes execution, becomes a slave, and then becomes a gladiator, who's then going to go into one-on-one -on -one combat with the emperor. Yeah. And his dying wish is going to be handing the power of Rome back to the people and the Republic. Uh, I'd say, great, I can't wait to go down to Rio de Janeiro to film this Brazilian telenovela. Uh, <laughs> I'm looking forward to it, <laughs> but it works. I don't know how it works, but it does. I remember being with an audience that I'd say right after Pulp Fiction, this was the most audience sat satisfaction I've ever sat with, where even looking at each other, we were like, it's absurd, but it's marvelous absurdity. It's so over the top, but Russell Crowe grounds it. I went to Alexander. My mom is an obsessive Alexander the Great reader, um, read dozens of books on him, totally obsessed. That movie was so disappointing. Everything shrunk. Um, Oliver Stone is the absolute worst director to try to pull off that story. Um, I would have loved to have seen Stanley Kubrick's Napoleon. Yeah. Alas, we don't have it. Yeah. Um, but here you have some really interesting historical backdrop to this tale. Right. Um, Marcus Aurelius is generally cited to be the end in the line of the golden era of Rome. Yeah, he was also a considerable philosopher. Considerable philosopher, wise man. You have five emperors, each handing off power to the most qualified person. This ends with Aurelius, who handed off the reins of power to his son, Commodus, who now if this rings any bells for listeners i'm saying it's on you but <laughs> commodus wished to name rome after himself he wanted to call it i think the colony of commodus <laughs> he wanted to rename a month after himself he was an avid trophy hunter he also was involved in rigged gladiatorial combat, where he won a hundred crowns from these rigged contests for the people. Um, he was very much into entertainment. He was incredibly sadistic. Um, as a youth, a bath was run for him, which was not sufficiently warm, so he had that person that ran it for him thrown into a furnace. Right. And you are looking at Rome in the last stages of its civilization, deeply leaning into and embracing decadence. And that decadence is manifested with gladiatorial combat mm. and, and moving into the lowest common denominator of keeping a, a civilization distracted from its sores and implosion. Yeah, but also, can I just to add, there's one little thing that I, I discovered in the last couple of days about Commodus is that he actually, he contracted COVID-19 for about four days, but made a miraculous <laughs> recovery. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's uh, the overlap with Trump is, is really remarkable. And I don't think I'm reaching when I inform people, lest they forget, Trump was trying to make his casino profitable. Casinos in this country are pretty difficult not to make profitable. Somehow this master of the deal failed with the Trump Plaza, went bankrupt, but he was closely aligned with Mike Tyson in the late 1980s, promoting a lot of fights and moved from there over to world wrestling, 
where he is a participant. And from there, he moves over to the UFC, where just this year he attended a fight. I was actually cycling down Manhattan, where I was interrupted by his motorcade trying to get to Madison Square Garden. Um, His sons are regular people at events. And those the, the head figure, the czar of the UFC, Dana White, was at his Republican convention speaking on behalf of president of, of soon-to-be President Trump. So very interesting how Trump has used techniques that go back to antiquity with all the problems. Let's not focus on them. Let's be entertained. And now we, we have a civilization here um, under existential threat yeah. where it's not let them eat cake, but let them have the UFC, let, let, let them be entertained. Um, I found the overlap 20 years after Gladiator came out with where we're at right now fascinating to delve into. Yeah, I think I, I don't think you're reaching at all, Bryn, because, you know, I'm sure if we were to look at the, the end of the Soviet Union, in the late 80s, if we were would have been privy to what was going on inside the Kremlin, we would have seen um, a regime that is trying to distract the population from uh, the crisis in which they're living, right? And you would have seen um, that borne out through entertainment, right? Or, you know, you certainly saw it under Ceausescu, and you see that it, it, it's not so much that, that, um, uh, that Trump was necessarily copying communists it's just as it shows how repetitive human nature is. Right. And, you know, the same thing I'm sure that happened at the end of the, you know, the Spanish Empire. Uh, you know, if you go into the Aztec Empire in South America, I'm sure if we just go into antiquity and run throughout the Middle Ages, you're going to find similar episodes again and again. And the marking is, as you said, you reach a zenith. There seems to be a succession of emperors in ancient Rome, as you were saying, who are chosen because of their ability. And then suddenly we're, we're into legacy. And it, I mean, it's, it's, no, it's no secret. I think Donald's preferred heir would be Ivanka. Yeah. Because, hey, look, if you can't sleep with your daughter, make her president, right? That's the only other option. <laughs> sorry. But no, but the, also the thing is that... Um, and, and, and I would just say, so on both sides also, how many times it, uh, are we getting the people running for president have a last name of Clinton or Bush in the last 30 years? A lot. Yeah, yeah. And the the, the thing is that, um, you know, in terms of the cycle where an empire begins to fail, it reaches a point of decadence. And as you said, then it's sort of to it starts to eat itself from within. It's not as if it's it's defeated in a mighty battle by another empire. They don't go toe to toe. They have little skirmishes around the world, you know, the British and the French, whatever the French and the Russians, you know, uh, the Franco-Prussian War or whatever. But it's it's at the it's at the extremities of the empire that it starts to starts to corrode, and then it eventually comes it sort of collapses from within. And I think if we were to compare it, you know, you were talking about the the, the succession of great emperors. I think the the best I think the greatest president America had in the 20th century was FDR, and he was elected a number of times, and he saw them through great crises, not only in terms of the Great Depression, but assisted them through with his fireside talks through the Depression and World War II. Now, you know, I'm sure there are other people who would say Reagan was the greatest president that they had in, in the 20th century. But look, that's a debate for another day. But there is a, a sense that we have definitely reached a point of phenomenal decadence. Because look at the look what's on TV. I mean, we, you know, we can all you have to do is look at the Kardashians. 
or even before that, I look at my own life and I'm, you know, I'm a little bit more concerned about my iPhone and the quality of, am I going to upgrade my iPhone? And I'm not saying necessarily that's a question of decadence, but it's definitely a question of comfort, do you know? And uh, there, there is then a question of, well, what do you do? How do you maintain a sense of purpose and um, drive and order within your political system if you don't have new worlds to conquer? And I'm not necessarily talking about going to war. I'm talking about new economic um, markets to do or, hey, how about this? Try to clean up your own house and, and raise up the expectation and hope of other groups that have been marginalized or trampled off the last hundred years. If you're not going to do that, you entertain people. Right. You know, in the Godfather, they said, you know, this is very, very bad for business. And whenever the business is bad, they go to war. They go to the mattresses. And you see that in now in um, in, in uh, under Trump, it's don't care about anybody, just entertain, entertain, and just steal as much money as you can. There's a lovely line in Gladiator, where they're where we're in the in the Colosseum, and we see the the rival senators, and one of them turns to I can't remember the name of the act, but he turns to Derek Jacoby's character Gracchus. Interesting name because we've just been talking about um, Spartacus and uh, who was played by uh, Charles Lawton. But Derek Jacobi's character, he says, he says, I didn't know you were, um, you were a man who to came to the, to the gladiatorial games. And um, Derek Jacobi's character says, I don't, don't pretend to be a man of the people, but I try to be a man for the people. And all of a sudden they start throwing bread to the, to the, to the, to the masses. And that is an indication of that's where Rome could go if it chooses the right path. And obviously, they're in huge danger because Commodus is on the throne. I think his name is, he could be on as commode, the way he's literally shitting on the empire and shitting on the city. So they could go both ways. They could go Gracchus's way, who seems to be a very, very just, caring man, or Commodus. And that's the reason why Maximus is, is presented. And the great thing in the terms of the story, I think, Bryn, is that Maximus, as you, as you plotted the story, he turns down Caesar. Right, he right. turns down, which makes him, which suggests that he is worthy of the power if he doesn't want it. As somebody who seizes it avariciously, very questionable their motivations. Right. No, I think there's a lot of points there. I mean, the other thing is, is I think The Atlantic ran an article not long ago that COVID has exposed in the United States definitively a failed state yeah. that with more money and more power, the only superpower in the world, all, all the rhetoric of that. Um, why is it that we have so many infections? I live four blocks away from New York Presbyterian Hospital at the height of COVID, and I'm thinking I'm in the global epicenter of this epidemic, yeah. and and now 220,000 deaths, and we're hearing rhetoric from the man in charge that nobody nobody handled it better, and that he prevented two million people from dying, which is the number that that experts have estimated if you did absolutely nothing. It's fascinating that you have all, of, you know, one in five kids uh, don't have enough food right now in the United States. So you're seeing all of these examples of when we're talking about how great the country is and make it great again and everything. What are we talking about in terms of like on the ground? It's like a third world country. And yet the wealthy have never been wealthier. It's not that it's a broken system. It's working very effectively just for very, very few people that yeah. control everything. So I think that, yeah, 20 years later, when you look at Gladiator and the beginning of the end of this five 
empire mm. that Rome represented, not ours, which has only really existed since World War II, that we've been the only su superpower. Um, this is an interesting film to delve into for that reason, because you're seeing the in intrinsic corruption. Um, and, and as you say, I mean, even Marcus Aurelius in this film, when Russell Crowe turns down power, that that is precisely why you should have it. And yeah. it's, it's interesting because now it seems like everything is incentivized in this apparatus of gaining power where sociopathy is a prerequisite. Right, right. Yeah, you, and you can, you can see that with, with Commodus's character, his entrance into the first battle, and he comes running up the hill. He says, Have I missed it? Have I missed the battle? You have missed the war. You've missed the war. And he says, Father, I will, I, congratulations on your win, on your victory, great victory. I will sacrifice 100 bulls in your honor. And Marcus says, save, save the bulls, honor Maximus. You know, so both men, both Maximus and Marcus Aurelius, um, you know, un understand that power can be absolutely corrupting and even worse if you are corrupted to begin with. And the way Commodus is presented, he's a really, really decadent character. Yeah. Very, very narcissistic. And in actual, so I think in actual fact, just as, as an aside, it's nothing really to do with the fabric of the story. But the original draft of the script written by David Franzoni, um, Maximus's character was actually called Narcissus. Right. And right. apparently, apparently, when they when they pitched the scripts to when they're pitching the story to uh, Ridley Scott, I think that was one of the first things to be changed. They said, you know, it's the audiences won't get behind a character called Narcissus. It, it yeah. just you know we, we can't have a character named after a flower, so that that's not going to work. But but you're absolutely right. I mean, the when when the movie was released, I remember the interpretation of it was it was a post Gulf War movie, mm. right? And especially a post. Uh, 1989, the wall coming down, the end of communism movie, that Marcus Aurelius begins the film with one final battle. And if he can defeat Germania, there will be peace throughout the land, right? And we have beaten, we have defeated um, Saddam Hussein and the, the great enemy of the, the evil empire of communism has been defeated. One more throw and we will be home. And so what's going to happen is that there's an enemy within the empire. Yeah. So it has to be done. And, but then um, it, the great thing, the operatic thing about the story is the sense of the restoration of freedom. Freedom will be afforded to everybody, to be to slaves and to prisoners alike. And interestingly, we were talking about Spartacus and the casting of Woody Strode uh, for Drava. And the casting of Juba is really, really important here. Jamin Hunsu um, in, in that role, excuse the pun, it gives greater color to the movie, yeah. you know. And when he's, he's the only, wonderful. he's wonderful. He's, he's incredibly well. He has what every actor wants to have: charisma in spades. Yeah, yeah absolutely in spades. I remember when I saw his the movie Blood Diamond, where he starred opposite um, Leonardo DiCaprio, and Leo is not lacking in the charisma department, but he came off a distant second against Jimin Hansu. Jimin Hunsu. Hunsu. It was just, yeah, he he has that, and so. He, when his character is introduced, he's actually protecting and saving Maximus. You know, he says, don't, don't scab at the wound. And you just know that this guy's been around the block in terms of injuries and battles, and he knows how to do it. So he's going to be a little bit of a mentor to Max's character. Yeah. Well, and I mean, it's, it's interesting because 
I, I agree with you. I think this introduced opera to sort of like, this became a sort of banner movie for the fraternity crowd, I think. Um, and yet it also, you know, critically, I think it did okay. I know Roger Ebert absolutely hated it. Or not hated it, that's too extreme, but but yeah. quite intensely disliked it. Yeah. Um, but it seemed like it was just Russell Crowe's moment yeah. as as becoming the biggest star in the world for, for a run. I mean, he's on his way to doing Beautiful Mind and winning another Best Actor. Um, but this film, I mean, Joaquin Phoenix, very interesting performance, interesting role. Uh, Ridley Scott, who I guess, I, I mean, we're going to go from this film, as you mentioned, to Troy, King Arthur, Alexander, 300, Noah, um, Kingdom of Heaven, dreadful film, uh, Robin Hood. Um, we're going to, this movie made a lot of money. It does really well at the Academy Awards. Curiously, I think it's one of the only film, best pictures where not best director. That's um, right. Not even best screenplay. Not even best screenplay. Uh, it's bringing in some of old Hollywood where you've got one of my favorites, Oliver Reed. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Richard, Richard Harris. Yeah. Really fun performance. Yeah. Uh, and I think just also, I mean, that first war sequence, I, I thought, boy, we're in for a ride here. This is spectacular fun. Yeah. There's a, there's a great shot. I mean, you know, you've got the, the very, very first shot is nicely done because it's the last image that you expect to see opening a movie. It's a hand waving itself gently across a wheat field. I think it's wheat. And then you, you cut to a static shot of um, Maximus and you know that he's imagining in other words, he wants to be somewhere else. So he's a general who doesn't really want to fight, but he fights right. because it's his duty. Right. And then he gets prepared for the, the battle. He gives a, the, the, the pre-battle speech. And just as the battle begins, there's a fantastic panning shot from behind the Roman legions. And they're hurling these fireballs across the battlefield to the Germanians in the distance. And they pan across. And it's all, I think the, there's a number of digital stitching going on but there's a huge sense of scale in that image and you know Ridley Scott has this epic eye and then when you say to yourself okay we're in for a really big big battle and good fun and uh, entertainment but I think though you know the, the battle exciting as it was I think the performances are very very well pitched they're all of the same tone mm. I think what Ridley Scott said was we don't, we don't want any and uh, any camp we don't want any campness in the story, right? And the nearest thing to campness, even the camp joke, was when after um, uh, Max, Maximus uh, bout in, or second bout in the, in the, uh, not in the, in the gladiatorial ring, um, he's, he's summoned to Oliver Reed's chambers and he says, you're good Spaniard, but you're not that good. What do you want? A girl? A boy? And that's as near to the old school campness that you're actually going to get in the movie. And Ridley Scott says, we're not going to show any Christians here. We're not going to show any crucifixes or this is just uh, Rome fighting Rome and um, pagan Rome fighting Rome. And we're just going to um, reference the politics, but we won't go into this, uh, the trap that so many of the sand and sandal epic movies from the 50s and 60s fell into, which was, you know, um, where they depicted all the Roman characters had English accents and all the slaves, in other words, the Jewish characters, the, the Israelites, as they would be contextualized or called the Hebrews, had American accents. And they were 
looking for their freedom. And so that's one of the reasons why films like Gladiator perpetuate the American myth about equality and freedom. You know, right, and that's, right. at the, that's at the heart of Gladiator. And the sad thing is, um, you know, as noble as that intention is, um, it just feeds into the, the fallacy of the, 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 political, the political reality, that we know there's gross injustice and, and inequality. And so the movie is actually there to paper over the cracks that have become more and more clear since 2000 when it was made. And they're actually cracking open right now in the political landscape in America. Well, no, I mean, there is the explicit homophobia directed to the giraffes that are referenced. Yes, the- sorry, that's, yes I'd forgotten that. Yes, you sold me queer giraffes. Yeah, if I bought a giraffe, I don't mind if they're homosexual or even hermaphrodite. I'm okay with any iteration of giraffe. I just like giraffes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but I, I think also after this great war sequence and the melodrama, I agree, it's very operatic in a sort of... I, I remember feeling that way with Brian De Palma at first. You watch Scarface and you think, this is so over the top. But once it's an opera, you think it's fabulous. Yeah, you've got to know how to watch it. Yeah, you got it. Yeah, you. Yeah, it's it's not failing at being something else. It's trying yeah. to be this, yeah. and so Russell Crowe, that tremendous scene where he's about to be assassinated, yeah, in the woods, it makes the blade stick. I mean, yeah. whole audience that I saw it with was howling with laughter, and it's, you know, it's delicious. It's yeah, it's kind of like a a Schwarzenegger line, like those catchphrases that just everybody loves. Let off some steam. Let off some, yeah, Uh let off some steam. uh, Impale somebody, stick around, you know. (laughs) Um, But to see The worst one, sorry, quickly, the worst one that Arnie had to deliver was from um, uh, Eraser, where a character is eaten by an alligator. He says, where is he? He's luggage. Or you're luggage. (laughs) Terrible. Oh, sorry to interrupt. No, 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 not at all. But but there's a there's an eloquence to Russell Crowe. One of the things I so admire about him as an actor is he can be erudite. You can believe him as an accountant, as an yeah. attorney, as a politician, as a PhD uh, in chemistry whistleblower from a tobacco industry violating a confidentiality agreement. Um, so just to have that moment of his rugged physicality yeah. suddenly veer into this wit that's yeah. present. You know, he has one of those smiles like Brando yeah, where yeah. he doesn't offer it much, but when it's there, it just shines this light that makes everybody smile, it makes kind of women swoon and men just think, oh, a yeah. guy to have a beer with sort of thing. He just has this quality. Um, after he's regaining his freedom, um, an unpleasant surprise awaiting him that his wife and child have been crucified, set on fire, his wife uh, gang raped yep. by, by Centurion. Um, go into gladiatorial combat. And then we're, it seems like Ridley Scott is taking us into the origin story of Spartacus, yes. where we go into the gladiatorial training school and. Um, I really like that sequence, and you know he wants he definitely we know we're going to be headed to Rome yeah. soon, and yeah. not just the Colosseum in Rome, but we're going to a fantasized version that's five times the scale of the actual Colosseum. It's actually it's actually what would have been, what Rome would have been had Albert Speer been able to realize the Nazi vision for Berlin. 
Right. Right. And it's a very, very deliberate shot that the camera comes. It's digitized, so it's not really a camera, but he comes through the clouds drifting over Berlin. And it's a take out of Lenny Riefenstahl's Triumph of the Will. Mm. And the way the camera tracks in and you look up then to the Colosseum, it's sort of something straight out of the Nuremberg, Nuremberg rallies. So, mm. you know, he's drawing an, an analogy from ancient Rome under communist would be a fascist, a fascist regime. Right. You know, um, but also, I mean, you're absolutely right about Russell Crowe. I mean, you know, you saw him romper stomper. Then he goes in an incredible run of pictures. I mean, I think it's very, very hard to think of an actor who was so blessed and who, who chose the project so well with really, really good directors. He goes from LA Confidential, which was Oscar nominated for nine Oscars, wins two. The Insider, opposite Al Pacino, he goes toe to toe and actually he's nominated. And while he, I think was, he was while he was making The Insider, he was chatting with Michael Mann. He says, yeah, I've got a, I've got a script here for Ridley Scott movie. And, and Michael Mann says, you out of your mind. Ridley Scott is the greatest shooter in the world. Go to make the movie. So then he goes off to make the movie. And that's his next picture. And then it's a Beautiful Mind. Then he also does Master and Commander. Yeah. You know, these are just one after the other after the other. I think... You know, he did five pictures, which five of them were not Oscar nominated for Best Picture. And I think I love Master and Commander. I think that's just a terrific pageant of storytelling. And his it's his version of Mutiny on the Bounty, isn't it? Clearly. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. You know, where he is both characters. He yeah. plays uh, Christian and uh, uh, Blythe because he is. I mean, I know that um, uh, uh, the character of Stephen played by... Yeah, I'm not sure either. <laughs> Stumps me. Just a second. The English actor. He's a very good actor. Um, and he had worked, they had worked together in with a beautiful mind. Um Paul sorry. Bettany? Is it Paul Bettany? Paul Bettany, thank you. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so I'll go back. You know, and so you have the the, the two, he's actually Captain he's he's Christian and Blind the same, but I know that he's in great debate with the character of Stephen played by Paul Bettany. Who they worked together with previously in *Beautiful Mind*, right. you know, and um, but you also hear, as you were saying, he has that delivery. He says, you know, uh, the blades, the ice makes the blades stick. It's, it's sardonic. It's all there's an air of nastiness about it, but he doesn't overreach with the nastiness because it's just a, it's a, it's a glimmer that we see in his eye. And then he's got a, actually Russell Crowe's got a beautiful voice. I mean, he reads poetry beautifully, and yeah. you know he's got a, It's almost like a tomica that you have. With, I wouldn't say quite in the range of Richard Burton or Anthony Hopkins, or Brando, but it's very, very melodious. Mm -hmm. You know, Burton, Burton is a really clever comparison because also Burton played Alexander in a, in right. a horrible biopic about Alexander the Great. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it, the interesting thing is that if we, if we talk about the lineage, we've been chatting last week about the lineage with, with Spartacus and by casting Peter Ustinov, who had played Nero in Covadus. In the casting of uh, Gladiator, you've got Richard Harris, who was a, a, a notorious hellraiser in the 60s. Yeah. Hanging around with the likes of Peter O'Toole, Albert Finney, and, of course, Richard Burton, who was the hellraiser to, to burn them all. Right. You know, and so the casting of Richard Harris is quite is is quite brilliant as well. Um, and he, he, I think his performance is very very good. It was, you know, it, and the great thing about the, the script, as as written by the three writers David Franzoni, John Logan, and William Nicholson, is that they understand that in that type of epic storytelling, the characters don't 
actually give speeches. They deliver epigrams. Mm. And they have they have two sentences, and the second sentence is an apparent contradiction of the first, but it's so beautifully constructed. You you say, oh, this person's very, very intelligent. They're very, very witty. They're very, very smart. So we're not dealing with a, a thug of a, a, a Roman soldier or a general. We're talking about somebody who really does appreciate going back home to his wife onto the estate because he wants to teach his son how to horse ride and care for the land. Yeah, you know, we have yeah. this idyllic view of the landscape of, of his of his great estates. So I think Russell Crowe surprised everybody. And I think that's one of the reasons why he won the Academy Award that year. Not only that, because, but because his role was so physically demanding, people misunderestimate or sorry, people underestimate how physically demanding that role was. Like when Kate Winslet played in Titanic, one of the reasons why she was nominated was because the physicality, the demands of that role to hang around the ice cold water so much. And we tend to think that acting is talking and it's and so much of it isn't so much of it is movement and gesticulation. And the fact that we believed Russell as a gladiator, I would say is about 60 to 70 percent of his Academy Award. We believed him as a warrior. Actors, if they took up a sword, you'd go, really? I uh, think don't think you can carry that spear. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, think Tom Cruise in that bizarre Lawrence of Olivier trans sorry, Lawrence of Arabia transplanted oh, to Japan. Last Samurai. Where this white savior complex of saving the last samurai. I mean, it, I like the Ken what Watanabe, I think mm -hmm. I'm saying his name right. That Watanabe. performance was yeah. brilliant. Yeah. yeah. But Cruise as a soldier is the most absurd thing ever, and let alone becoming as is his want, the greatest soldier to ever enter into samurai combat. Yeah, I, um, <laughs> yeah. You know. I think it's interesting you were saying it's a good analogy to, to Tom Cruise because I think Tom Cruise has a face that doesn't actually travel through time. He can only play modern characters. There's uh, certain faces that certain actors have. There's no way, you know, the oldest you can get for Al Pacino is World War II. <laughs> <laughs> And that's the, that's the Godfather. There are certain faces that simply do not lend themselves outside of the the urban 20th century landscape. You know, um, Robert Redford. I'm wondering, does Robert Redford transcend that because we saw him in Butch and Sundance? But I think he was able to play that role because he had a face that looks rugged, but also quite handsome, very very beautiful. But you know, Jack Nicholson isn't a guy who, although he's made two westerns, you don't see him on a horse and believe it. For a second. Right. You don't see him as 19th century. I think apparently Kubrick was thinking of casting Nicholson as Marlon, uh, sorry, not Marlon, as Napoleon, I think. Yeah, read that I, don't, too. I don't know whether that would have worked or not, because he just simply doesn't have that face. And Tom Cruise doesn't. And Russell Crowe does. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I think you're absolutely right. A huge part of this is, I think, just the, the most basic... What Nabokov said is that you don't you don't judge a masterpiece of literature by your brain or your heart. It's by your spine tingling, yeah, and and this has an element of that. Where yeah. I know this this Rome never existed. I know, <laughs> yeah. I know this general is a construct of a few characters. I know that the Commodus that they've created is a construct of a few yeah. different emperors. You're getting Caligula in there a fair bunch. Um, but I don't care because this is a fun world to drop into. Yeah. I, I'm a big, I have a lot of issues with CGI. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't like it anywhere here particularly, 
but it was but the story carried it enough yeah. that it was sort of like okay you have your segue to get us from a to a to b yeah. you know get us from morocco and then we'll get into rome and you'll yeah. show us the Colosseum, and we'll fly over um it's it's tolerable but it's a little annoying but when you're seeing the combat the the balance that they struck of just such lush violence yeah um it is gory. Cool. yeah it's very gory and and i again i think i rented the the director's cut of this so it's more gory mm. but again it's laying the groundwork in lots of I think ancillary and very direct ways to Game of Thrones becoming the phenomenon that it did. Um, you had Joffrey's character, a lot of people's favorite villain in the series, was explicitly based on Joaquin Phoenix's portrayal here of Commodus. So the DNA of this film, I think, you, you can't understate how much it played a role in launching this neo sandal and sand <laughs> thing. Yeah. Most of the others were not great, but I think Game of Thrones was a, a very satisfying watch for a huge swath of people. Um, I just think that the, that those these other Sand and Sandal films just didn't have an actor with the gravitas of Russell Crowe at the helm. Yeah, and and likewise, they didn't they didn't pitch them correctly. I think, as we were saying, that Gladiator is operatic because there's a there's a there, it's not like a quest picture, which is what Alexander turned into. Yeah. Right? Um, Troy should have worked, but for a variety of different reasons, it didn't. Um, I think Wolfgang Pedersen is a, is a considerably talented director. I think his finest hour was either Das Boot or In the Line of Fire. Yeah. Clint I thought that was a terrific piece of entertainment. And But um, for a variety of different reasons, Troy didn't work. I think it may have come down to the casting. Um, you know, and there's, there's many battles between um, Hector and it was an Ajax. I can't remember who who fought the Ajax battle. Ajax is in there yeah. too. You know, doesn't and, work. Doesn't work. No, and you know the introduction of Achilles is this sort of, sort of um, pre-Christian rock star who who's got all the chicks. Do you know, that oh. doesn't work either. I think it would have been his introduction would have been much better if we didn't see Achilles at all for the first act. And um, uh, Helen is kidnapped, or Helen leaves, okay, with Paris. And Agamemnon wakes up in the morning and discovers that she's gone, and he decides to launch the thousand ships to start the war. And then they start, they lay siege. And then um, uh, there's this a second wave of of uh, of uh, ships to come across the ocean. And they said the order is issued that all the ships will land on the shore at the same time. We must have a united front to to affect the campaign and then one ship breaks out from the, all the others this is the way i would have done it here i am directing a 300 million dollar movie and one ship breaks out and the other or the other where is the hell is achilles and then all of a sudden the guy jumps down onto the beach himself and that's achilles and you say that's the guy who's going to take the city right but obviously he's got a fatal flaw but the thing is that would have been a proper introduction to brad pitt's character as opposed to have him with he wakes up late you know, he's hung over. Oh, you want me to go and fight? Okay, dude, I'll go off and fight. And he wins the battle in one fell swoop. That was silly. Do you know it, what I mean? It didn't work. No. I, and I also just think Brad Pitt's flaw as an actor, I mean, I think his gross limitation is he exudes a kind of decency that just colors the characters. Yeah. You, 
you know, I think I okay. I mean, California is pretty dark, and I think he does it well. It's serviceable, but you can tell this is a guy who struggles to tap into that darkness, mm. and yeah. in a way that there's a sadism to a lot of the other great actors. And I love him as a character actor. I mean, obviously yeah. that's the cliche is he's a leading man and a character actor in a leading man's um, body. But there's something about that film where, you know, the, I think the decency of Eric Bana playing Hector in that film contrasted with Achilles yeah. where it's all vanity and glory. And um, the real reason he's fighting is sort of when he looks over his shoulder at the chanting troops calling out his name, but you just don't, I don't know. It just doesn't work to elevate the material in a way that Russell Crowe's ambivalence in this film, that he wants to get back to his family, the memory of what it is in the morning of the sense of his home and the sense that are there in the evening and the morning and stuff, which apparently he ad libbed. It was him referencing his home back in Australia. And I mean, it's those moments that to me separate Russell Crowe and the material yeah. from a lot of other things where it's not just testosterone you're seeing some sensitivity a reticence to engage in violence um yeah. a desire for justice as much yeah. as order um wanting to go back to a republic as opposed to this dictator wanting to assume power wanting a simple life and and wanting to lead a life of service for the masses of rome and and the yeah. idealism of yeah. a Rome that moves into something more egalitarian. Um, that struggle is very compelling to watch with him. You feel it with him. Yeah. In, in a way that I think a lot of these other films that come after, the motivations are just very one note. Yeah, or, or, they're, or they're muddled. Or you they're know, muddled. They're definitely, you know, the funny thing is, um, Gladiator came five years after Braveheart, but nobody I've ever met has ever said, oh, Gladiator was made because Braveheart was a hit. Braveheart actually wasn't that much of a hit. It huh. struggled repeatedly to get across the 50, 55, 60 million dollar barrier. They had to, Warner Brothers had to re-release it, I think, three times. And the second one was the Oscar campaign in December. And then when it won, it got all the Oscar nominations, then it was re-released again. Gladiator hit 187 million dollars in America, I think, alone. Okay. Wow. And so films like Troy and King Arthur were made in its wake. And they're, I think they're all trying to imitate it. And a lot of the time, you know, they were looking for the, the same emotional beats from Gladiator, trying to ram them into other stories. And a, a really, really important emotional beat in, in Gladiator is when Russell goes in for a second, a second bout in the arena, this is before they get to Rome, and he absolutely decimates his opposite, the rivals. He... I think he actually decapitates one of the, the characters and yeah. it's really, really brutal. And he turns for a pin cushion. That's uh, it. Yeah. Right. And then he says, are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? Is this not why you are here? He has the ability to be absolutely vicious in the ring, but he has the wherewithal to distance himself from it and say, this is what you want. I will give it to you if that's what you want, but this is not me. And that's a huge emotional, um, uh, it's an emotional beat because it reinforces who he is from the beginning. He's a farmer. He's, a far he's not a gladiator. He's not, he's not uh, a slave and he's not a general. He's a farmer. 
That's why you keep on seeing him repeatedly touching the earth at different points throughout the story, because yeah. that's that, that's his connect, connectivity. And another reason why I think it's it, the, the reason why the movie was such a because it has a phenomenal narrative clarity. Yeah. It, it, you, you said it there when you were pitching it in terms of the, the plot structure. And um, Joaquin Phoenix repeats it, kernelizes it at the end, just prior before they go into the ring, to the arena at the very end. He says, the general who became a slave, the slave, you know, the slave who challenged the empire, quite a story. That's three acts. There's yeah. a simplicity, there's the essence of it. And they never lost track of that. And I think when you look at a film like King Arthur, they're trying to reimagine the mythology of King Arthur. Well, good luck with that. Yeah. Because audiences have their mythology coded into the master who, who King Arthur is and they go into the picture and they're given something else and they just know the advantage that they have with Gladiator nobody knew the story of Maximus whether he existed or not anybody outside of historical um, anybody outside of the history department in colleges across the world nobody knew about Marcus Aurelius or Commodus or all that sort of stuff so the movie could actually create the mythology for us as opposed to us going Really, was that? I don't think that's what happened with um, Alexander. I don't think that's what happened in Troy. I don't think that's what happened in King Arthur or, heaven forbid, Robin Hood, which was a complete mess. I think it was a disaster. Horrible. You know? No, I think you're. I think you're quite right with this film, and I think also the notes that are there that I think twenty years later resonate very deeply. That we're moving into a corrupt phase of this civilization, moving into decadence. Um, we had ideals that elevated us as a people and what we stood for. And we are now following this utterly corrupt, immoral leader. Marcus Aurelius calls Commodus an immoral person. Yes. And yet that immoral person has stronger instincts. Like despite being less intelligent than Aurelius, he outmaneuvers him to seize power, yeah. um, outmaneuvers Russell Crowe. I don't know what Maximus was thinking um, not calling out what had happened, not seeing what Commodus would do. Yeah. Big misfire, like mm. way to get your <laughs> wife and kid <laughs> yeah. uh, to suffer for your sins. Um, but I think what you see also with the senatorial conversations is Rome is the mob. That yeah. sense of we're moving into the lowest common denominator, populism yeah. dominating who we are. Yeah, we, we are anti somebody like Russell Crowe who doesn't want power, who wants us to be better than we are, to reach for our ideals. Commodus reflects us. And I think you see that in uh, a lot of people. I mean, one of my big fears, not to move too far into the political, is people thinking that we're somehow going to wake up from what Trump, Trump represents right now in this country is – Imagine a competent version of this. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Yeah. And also, that would be truly terrifying. You know, an efficient, really, really efficient version. And then the, th the, the question then is, um, if Trump is defeated, the people who supported him, I'm not, I'm not asking and I'm not suggesting that they should go away, but where will they go? Uh, politically, and I'm not talking about in terms of changing their ideology or their, their political uh, political manifestos or anything like that. I'm talking about where will they go in terms of the function of the society and culture. They will still be on the benches. They will still be in the police force. They will still be in the media. So it's not like if Trump is defeated, that problem will evaporate. You no. know, it's still there. 
and that was that was very clear i think at the beginning uh, straight after the battle when when russell when maximus goes into the great big tent and he's introduced to the the other senators and he says one of the one of the advantages of being a soldier is that you can look your enemy in the eye Right, and right. you know that these guys are completely dishonest with one another. And I think that's really, for me, Bryn, the, the ultimate definition of what decadence is. Decadence, for me, is the acceptance of vile hypocrisy. Decadence, for me, isn't the fact that, you know, I have $500 million in the bank and I can go water skiing behind my yacht. It's just the, it's, it's where you reach the point that complete hypocrisy um, is completely accepted. And we, we shrug our shoulders and say, well, Donald is Donald. If he shoots somebody on Fifth Avenue, or heaven forbid, if he gives somebody COVID-19 and they die, well, he's the hallowed leader, so we're going to go with it. You know, it's a complete compromise of our ideals. And I think that's what Gladiator touches on. I think you're absolutely right. And I, I mean, the line that jumped out at me, I think that's just underlining exactly your point, is Italo Calvino in Invisible City said... Uh, of another falling empire, of Kublai Khan's empire, um, the issue is not that this empire has sores, it's that it's grown accustomed to them. Right, right. And I, and I think that's what you're seeing kind of codified by Commodus's reign, um, both in this fictionalized version and, and the reality, yeah. is... Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, and this is also a time. I mean, one of the things in researching this that blew me away is gladiators in this era. I mean, we're going back 1,800 years plus. Um, were subject to product placement. They would endorse products in their time. There's actually a hint to that in the film. I mean, they, they're turned into celebrities. Right, right. So and, yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, no, I interrupted you. You were saying product placement. Well, no, and I mean, another interesting thing was there were rumors and legends that Commodus actually was the result of his mother having an affair with a gladiator. Right. Okay. So, I mean, it's it's a fascinating time, you know, to think of, of where that empire is headed. And, you know, you right now we're living in a time which 100 years from now, what are the movies that are going to be made of where we are? What yeah. are going to be the compelling narratives that will be the takeaways or how will they spin them? But, you know, a million people dead on planet Earth, it's not the Black Plague of no, half of Europe. But it's, it's really interesting you should say that, Bryn, because I saw an interview with um, Aaron Sorkin promoting the trial of Chicago 7 the other morning. And he was asked, you know, about in, in these tr very troubled and uncertain political times, how will future filmmakers depict this era? And he, he's of the opinion that no one will ever... You won't see Trump on screen. Trump will be off screen, and um, if he is on screen, it won't be he won't be portrayed by an actor. It'll be real news news footage. It'll be TV footage, and I agree with him, but for slightly different reasons. Not that you can get an actor to play Trump. It's because Trump has no subtext. Mm. There is nothing beneath what he's saying, so there's nothing else to interpret. He has he is the most phenomenal postmodern cipher you can get. Because there's, there's nothing ironic about him. The, you know, we all say there's no sense of shame, but he's he's completely mercurial because you cannot pin him down. You can insult him. You can throw all these adjectives at him to describe him. You can give this m magnificent analysis, but the ultimately for me is there's no subtext to the guy at all, which means, you know, I, w I wouldn't even say there's there, there's surface to what he does. 
is just, you know, he, he has phenomenal instincts. I'll, I'll grant him that. He is a wildly, dangerously intelligent man. But the problem is, thankfully, is that he doesn't organize that well. He's so fated with his own, he's so, he's so weighted with his own arrogance that he won't hand over authority to anybody else because he, that'll, his narcissism won't allow, them to, it won't allow him to admit that they're more intelligent than him. Thank God. Because as you said, can you imagine a very, very organized, efficient version of this? You know, um, but also the great thing about Commodus's character, we tend to forget, not only does he murder his, his father, he lusts after his sister. Right. You know, and I think Connie Nielsen, we tend to forget. I thought she was she played uh, she played Lucilla very, very well in the in the movie. And I'd like to have seen a little bit more of her. But I thought she had a, a sufficiently strong, resilient character. And um, that she knew that she was completely compromised, because if she doesn't give in to um, Commodus's incestuous demands, her son is going to be murdered. Right. You know? And I thought that was a, a, a good dichotomy and a good compromise. She has great motivation, but she's a great obstacle in her character. You know, um, she's also trying to to vanquish or to 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 vanquish her dead father as well. Um, and I thought it was a nice performance. It certainly wasn't Oscar worthy. Nom- it was, was, we're not talking about she was de- deserving of an Oscar nomination, but I think she held up that pillar of the story very well. You know, and also the great frisson between herself and Maximus, that we know that there was some sort of sexual allure between them beforehand. But she was married and he wasn't much of a, a general at the time. So that's why she got married and didn't go with him. And now her husband is dead and now his wife has been murdered. So there's every reason for them to come together. But they don't come together because Rome is what they were about. Do you know what I mean? It's not. It's not. It's like the, the great speech in in Casablanca. The problem of two little people don't amount to a hill of beans. Hill of beans in this crazy world. So both Maximus and Lucilla know that um, that they shouldn't get together because really there's other things at stake. Yeah. Well, let's go to our categories to finish it off because there's some fun revelations that I ran into. Right. Maybe some you know. Uh, many I had no idea. Uh, as far as the what we're calling the Winnie Cooper Award for what perspective would be best to follow, I don't know. I think they absolutely succeeded with Maximus Decimus Meridius's perspective. Yeah. Um, are you aware of some of the actors who are in contention for starring in this role ahead of Russell Crowe? Stun me. We have first Mel Gibson, our favorite uh, oh. anti-Semitic actor. Well, there, yeah, you know, Bryn, you know that he had really campaigned very, very hard to play Schindler, and Spielberg, thank God, said no. Great instincts on Spielberg's part, you know, Harrison Ford. I mean, not that Harrison Ford put himself up, but the studios wanted someone like Harrison Ford or Michael Douglas and la 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 la, and Spielberg went, no, I found the guy. It's 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 Liam Neeson. But I think Mel Gibson wouldn't have delivered. It's interesting. This is fascinating. It was that same year he made The Patriot, right? I mean, he's about, I think he's in his early 40s, so he would have been about the same age as Kirk Douglas and Spartacus. <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> but but the thing is, though, that um, um, Mel doesn't have the range that Russell has. And if you compare what he, the way he portrayed the character in The Patriot, I can't remember the character's name, he has a bloodlust. You know, yeah. he, he hacksaws a number of British soldiers with his tomahawk, his hatchet. And he really, really levels in that bloodlust. And... They set back. I think they, they cast it correctly with Russell Crowe. Yeah. Well, and the others in contention, Hugh Jackman, which I think would have been a singular disaster. Yes, he would have started singing. 
Yeah, he would have started singing. It would have been turned into an actual opera. As a... <laughs> <laughs> um, another, which is, I guess, appropriate as far as the nation attached to him is Antonio Banderas. Wow. That would have been curious. I wouldn't say interesting, curious. I don't know whether he would have been right at all. I just don't think he has the physicality for it. No. I mean, I know Desperado is an action movie, but yeah. No. He, he, look, he made the right decision by not, not, by not putting himself forward. I think so. Um, for the role of Proximo, played by one of my favorites, Oliver Reed, because I, I think we had musical theater in sixth grade doing Oliver Twist, and he was oh, very yeah. memorable. And <laughs> yeah, Bill Sykes. Woo, terrifying. Um, other than Oliver Reed, they were trying to get Arnold Schwarzenegger for the role of Proximo. And that would have died a death right there. Or could have been amazing. <laughs> well, fair enough. Okay. Yeah. No, but I, I think there, you know, it, well, here's, here's the thing. You're absolutely right. We were saying the last time, when you change the, when you change the, the casting, you change the character and the, the character then changes the plot. Yeah. Right. Because they would have tailor made it. But I'm just thinking that that lovely line when um, Proximo delivers, he says, we will go to Rome. And we'll dine. So I can't remember exactly what he says, but we will have feasts. Yeah. You know, he stands before the window and he, he reaches out his arms. We shall go to Rome together and have bloody adventures. And the great whore will suckle us until we are fat and happy and can suckle no more. And then, when enough men have died, perhaps you will have your freedom. And obviously that line wouldn't be given to Arnold Schwarzenegger. They would have said something else, you know. Um, but then he, when he arrives in Rome, he puts his foot on the, the statue and he says, like, good to see you again, old friend. There's a beautiful tragedy about Oliver Reed's performance, not in retrospect, because we know that he died on set, but even, it's, a, it's not a swan song, but his, his delivery, at the, again, was really, 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 really well judged. Yeah. You know, he was a guy who was a hellraiser in his youth, and so he would have been a gladiator in his youth. And so he's been through that fire. And now he sees the young Turks, the young Turks, the young actors coming through. So he recognized that in Russell Crowe. And I think there was a lovely, there was a brutality of Oliver Reed, but there was also the gentleness as well, you know, as, as many alcoholics have. And I think he, he was right for the part. I, I, I think Arnie would have unbalanced it. I think you're right. Um, and also, which this is hard for me to wrap my head around, but in the original script, Proximo and Maximus were to have a fight in the Colosseum. So the idea of having a, a 65-year-old, yeah. you know, just black liver Oliver Reed <laughs> get get under the armor once more after fighting right. himself into freedom, fighting Maximus, uh, I don't think I want to see that. Russell Crowe and Arnold Schwarzenegger, we could yeah. Now, now you're making. Now I understand what you're saying. Now I understand because actually, just doesn't he fight? Um, isn't there one gladiator who comes out of retirement to yeah. fight this beautiful silver silver mask that he wears? I think that would have been the equivalent of Proximo, maybe. I think you're right. I think that must have been the substitute. You're right. Yeah. Um, so, uh, oh, another one is the, speaking of Arnold Schwarzenegger and the appropriate time period from Pumping Iron. Yeah. Lou Ferrigno was asked to play that guy who, who got into the white armor who uh, Maximus fought. So 
these are some, you know, to have Lou Ferrigno and Schwarzenegger reunited in Gladiator would have been quite yeah. something. I actually just think also, um, for, they're absolutely right to not put Proxima on the ring because it would have, it would have been really, really unpleasant for for Maximus to kill off his potential father, uh, potential mentor. That yeah. he was the guy who guided and brought him back to Rome. Um, I mean, Proxima wasn't the villain. I mean, and it just shows that here's the thing. Another thing it's interesting when you're when you're suggesting when you're listing the actors who are thought of. It shows how much work and how many different decisions the screenwriters have to make to make this work. And if you make one wrong decision, apparently. Um, when they were they were been shooting for a couple of weeks, and they, they were shooting the battle scenes that opened the movie, and they knew that they were they only had about twenty two pages of the screenplay actually written. They knew they had battle, big battle sequences, but they didn't have the plot ironed out. And so they contacted a guy called William Nicholson, and they sent him the script. And he said, "You've got a bit of a problem here, because it looks the, the way you've read, structured it so far is that Maximus just wants to become emperor." And um, he just everything he does is is lusting for power and he's not really likable so if you put it that he wants to go home to his wife at the beginning of the movie and then his wife is murdered and everything he does then is to get back to his wife he changes the the characterization completely yeah and yeah. it just shows how close the movie comes to master at every you know uh, this is a bill simmons category I'll give him credit for it because it's an interesting one. If this was remade as a 10-episode Netflix series, is this a better film? Is it more fun? Possibly. I mean, as you were saying, it gave birth to Game of Thrones, you know? Yeah. So absolutely. I mean, I, I don't know whether... Yeah, look, I'd, I'd love to see a 10-hour version of it if I knew that the, the cast would be there and it would be just as operatic, you know? Yeah, I think you're right. Um, most iconic moment of the film for you? Well, I think everyone says my name is Maximus Decimus Meridius. That's it's just a great speech, you know. And apparently, that was faxed through the morning of the scene. Funny, you that's know. Funny. And and uh, you know, Russell turns around and gives the line, and everyone says, "That's great, Russell." And he says, "I'm the world's greatest actor. I could make the phone book sound interesting." And that's the type of ego you want in the actor to deliver that sort of stuff because he completely believes. You know that he he is the army to the generals of the north, loyal subject to the uh, to the Caesar and la 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 la. I can't really remember the rest of the speech, but you know he, he nails every every single beat of that that speech. It's also interesting to me in that Quentin Tarantino observation that the sign of a good action film is you want to dress like the characters. <laughs> um, those little touches, all and any other actor, it would become such an affectation. But him grabbing dirt before the fight. Yeah. You know, it reminded me of, uh, to bring this back to a little bit of boxing, Tyson was always kind of creaking his neck. You noticed a whole pile of boxers started creaking their neck all the time. <laughs> yeah. And and he was somebody who was also very much an amalgam of the, the ticks of the boxers who preceded him. Right. You know, he wasn't the first one to wear no socks. He wasn't the first one to wear all black or to not wear a robe. Um, he's stealing from everybody to create a character. And this is true also of, you know, Napoleon, the hand in the jacket gesture that's so famous for him, uh, like the, in the sleeve. He didn't invent it. He just made it his own. Right. Yeah. Yes. It, you know, the funny thing is we were talking about Nicholson earlier. Um, 
when they were on the set of uh, Easy Rider, there was a character, there was a chap on the crew who would take a swig from his bottle and they go and start flapping his elbow like a chicken. And then Nicholson saw it and Nicholson put it in the movie. And then the other guys continued to do it. And someone said to him, he says, you've got to stop doing that because they will think that you stole it from Nicholson in the film. So the guy who invented the gesture has to abandon it. <laughs> That's really funny. <laughs> wow. And I, I mean, I think this film also, I mean, yeah, my f favorites, uh, where I knew I was in for a great ride and that Russell Crowe was somebody to buy season tickets for mm -hmm. um, was Frost, It Makes the Blade Stick. The Frost. Sometimes it makes the blade stick. Where I just went, I know there's going to be 10 more moments in this movie that is going to be the friends I'm with watching this. We're going to look at each other like, what? <laughs> like, this is so much fun. Yeah, um, yeah. Let's see. Uh, what do you think is the most iconic moment of the film? Well, the line would definitely be Maximus, Decimus Meridius. Um, uh, but I think the hand over the wheat. Yeah. I think that really works. And apparently that was a last minute decision. Just going into to, to, to film the battle. And I think the one of the reasons why the movie works so well, Bryn, and the reason why the movie made $187 million, as opposed to the 65 that Braveheart made, was because the movie, strange as it may sound, the movie has a very strong female heart beating within it. And that's the reasons why many women are really, really enjoyed the film was because, you know, he refuses, he turns down the empire because he loves his wife so much. And he's thinking of her in the heat of battle or just before the battle starts. He's completely respectful of, of Lucilla, although they do have a fight and they do argue. Lucilla is respectful. She's protective of her child. And um, Russell, as you said, wants to go back with his wife. But the music that we hear on the soundtrack composed by um, um, Hans Zimmer and sung by Lisa Gerard, for me, that is Maximus's wife. Mm. We hear her voice haunting all the way through the film. And that's why I think for, for a movie that otherwise, if you had you know, Arnie in the role and had they put Mel in the role, you would have vanquished the female heart in that film because we, it's look, it's, there's enough testosterone, testosterone flying around that movie anyway, but there is, I think a very strong female heart in the picture. And that's one of the reasons why women in, I, th I can't generalize, but I think that's one of the reasons why a lot of women will enjoy the movie. And that's the reason why that movie made so much money because it was a female audience that drove it again. I mean, look, don't, sorry, let me rephrase that. The female audience would have been part of the engine that drove it to $187 million. If they weren't there, it would have been a hundred or less. You know, so that I think the hand over the wheat is the is the is the shot. Yeah, I yeah. think you're right. I, I agree with you. I mean, I've heard you point out before. Uh, you know, you look at all the biggest box office stories; the vast majority are love stories. Yeah, and the dominant emotionality of of Maximus is not vengeance, violence. It's predicated on love and love lost. Yes. You know, yeah, the, with the little dolls that are his family and stuff, yeah. like those are the moments where we care about him. 
Yeah, exactly. And I think the thing is, in terms of a um, career baggage, if they had agreed to put, if, if Mel Gibson had said yes, that would have been lost in the story. Because um, uh, Mel's persona is vengeance. That's all it is. You know, Lethal Weapon, Mad Max, The Patriot. Um, you know, even, uh, I can't, can't think of the other one. Sorry, I, I've, I've, I've lost trajectory of his career, but there's so many characters who are driven by vengeance. And as we've discussed before, it's such a hollow motivation at the end, you know. Um, and and Max Maximus is driven by love. Uh, uh, yeah, I think that's the reason why I really enjoy the movie is because it has just it has emotional cadence. It has a rhythm to it, which is, as I said, is operatic, but it, it's not one note. And there's a beautiful variation between. I mean, even I'm talking about the brightness and the darkness. Russell refer or Maximus refers to Rome. He says Rome is the light. Yeah. Right? The rest of the world is dark and nasty and brutal, or something which is actually a variation on, on Macbeth. And then Commodus himself is the heart of darkness. I mean, even he's wearing eyeliner. You know? right. And I know he wears white, but that's ironic. But also, I think just the, just the little nuances. I mean, the fact that um, Marcus Aurelius is wearing purple is great. One thing I didn't realize. Um, orange was the color apparently the brides wore in ancient Rome. Mm. Okay, it was, it, was, it, was, it was. I think it was to do with festive festivity. And if you watch the movie, when Commodus is returning to Rome, Lucilla is wearing orange. And I think that I think John T. Yates, the the, uh, the costume designer, put that in just as a as a little signal for us to go. If you if we know our Roman lore, we'll go. Ah, right. Commodus wants her as his bride. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I really enjoyed this one. Um, thank you so much for, for chatting with me. Great fun. <laughs> All right, thanks so much, Stephen. Talk See to you soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to No Happy Endings, which is produced by George Alarcone Swaby, myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler, and is presented by The Ring. <laughs>